Uh, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to kind of pick up um, not long after uh, the birth narrative in, in which we're going to get to see, um, well, what I think is a, an important part and, and, and maybe bookend or capstone, I guess, of our Advent series. So, so just to kind of set and remind you what, what Advent is about, and especially for those who are um, visiting with us this week that maybe don't hear this often, um, we do Advent every year. Advent simply means arrival. It means coming. And, and so every year this time, this season, we, it's usually the weekend, the Sunday right after Thanksgiving, we begin to celebrate Advent and just consider the arrival or the coming, the, 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 the arrival of Jesus as our Savior, but also that leads us to anticipate his return because there's one arrival that we have already in history that we look back to, but there's a second arrival, a second coming that's promised that we look forward to. And so every year we take this time to do this. And every year the theme's just a bit different. We think about different things. We, we approach it from slightly different perspectives maybe. But it's always to show that what God has always been doing is working to fulfill his promises, to send a Savior, to send his Son, to send one, to take care of the issue of our sin so that we could be received as acceptable to him. And, and, and so here's the reality. This, this year... Uh, it actually fit really well with the series we've been in. We've been in the Alpha and Omega series. And the point in Alpha and Omega, God from beginning to end, is to see God across the whole of Scripture accomplishing His work and moving towards fulfillment of His promises. And that started in Revelation and it led us to go back to creation. And so that's where we were working on and working in as we looked at those first three chapters of the Bible and, and as we developed this Advent series or this, the Ad, Advent themes, they were all rooted in themes or perspectives that were established all the way back in the beginning. So week one, Ricky leads us to the light and life of Christ being revealed in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, right? Nothing was created with Him, nothing exists apart from Him. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and He showed us that, 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 that Jesus is the life and light of men, that we lost in the fall. The light and life that was established in creation, we lost in the fall. Ricky shows us that God has been working to bring us that light and life in his son, Jesus Christ. Week two, uh, Pastor Dave shows us that, that in the same way that Adam was a representative of us, and in Adam's sin, we all sinned, and therefore we all die, in Jesus we find life. And in, in Christ, all who are in Christ live and live eternally. Their sins are forgiven. And so, so there was the first Adam in Genesis. There's the last Adam in Jesus Christ. Week three, Pastor Bob brings us to see that, that through Jesus Christ, God has promised to destroy, to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the serpent slayer. So uh, he makes the promise in Genesis 3.15. We're going to read that later on. This morning, he makes the promises in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent. Hey, I'm going to send an offspring that's going to, you're, you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to strike your head, basically talking about conquering and um, victory. And so we recognize that the consummation of that isn't complete, but it's certain. It says, it's as certain as the moment that you put somebody into checkmate, you don't actually have to move the piece to take the king because they're the ones with the turn, right? You move into checkmate and, and the game's over. They don't, they don't take a turn because it's certain you've won. And then they don't take, because of the certainty of what the outcome is. This, this, the serpent, Satan, is in checkmate. There is no more moves to be made. 
Jesus has won, Jesus will win. You understand? So he is the serpent slayer. And we saw that rooted in Genesis chapter 3. And then last week I showed you the, the, the flow of blessing and curses throughout the scripture. Over and over and over, we, we see God approaching people, offering blessing based on his grace, but also countering that with if, if this is, doesn't hold, if you don't remain faithful, there are curses. With the exception of Abraham, who he said, I'm going to bless you, and anyone who curses you, I'll curse them. And, and, and so we see God working through, and, and really through the Apostle Paul teaching us that Jesus is the one in whom we're blessed and can escape the curse. And this week, and, and I, I know that's a lot, and I, I know you're wondering why, because it all ties together. Because this week, we're going we're gonna to put the, put the cap on the capstone, put the, put the cornerstone in place. I don't know what analogy you might want there. You pick one in your own mind. But we're going to finish this with looking at Jesus again and seeing again from Genesis 3 how God is fulfilling the promise he made in Jesus Christ. That through the seed of the woman, he is going to provide a victor, a savior, one who is going to put an end to enmity. So, so let's look at that. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. We'll read it. We'll pray. We'll work through it and just see what the Lord has for us today. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagal, Nagai, the son of Matt, the, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek. You following me? <laughs> The son of Melchi, or I, I probably skipped some here. The, the, son, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of jo, Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Elkim, the son of Meli, the son of Minnah, the son of Mattah. Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, oh, there's one we recognize, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of, of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirach, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Ar. Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, this, another one we recognize, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, another one, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> I think we normally, if I'm to be honest, just pass right over your word here. We look past these things, we don't give them a lot of thought, we don't recognize the the part they play in redemptive history, we, we, we dismiss that in them we can see you at work. So I pray today, Father, I, I pray by the power of your spirit and really to the glory of your son that he would be exalted as we consider who he is and what he's done as we're pointed to it in this passage. I pray, Father, that our Christmas would be fuller because we know in, in Christ we've been given the greatest gift of all. 
I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Jesus, the Son of God, is the seed of the woman God promised would come to put an end to enmity, bless the nations, and reign victorious forever. Believe it or not, that's right there in those names that I just read. Jesus, the Son of God, is the seed of the woman God promised would come to put an enmity, bless, put an end to enmity, bless the nations, and reign victorious forever. And I know already you're thinking, well, how in the world are you getting it? Because that drives us to look at things in the scripture that we as we begin to see what God has done through the promise of the seed of the woman, through, through, through the promise of sending one, he has been at work. And it's all been about Jesus. All the work God has been doing, all of the scripture, all of the covenants, all of the promises, all of the, all of the interactions and dealings with mankind, all of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. In fact, he said to the Pharisees at one point, hey, you look to the scriptures, and the Pharisees would have been looking to the Old Testament, right? They weren't reading, they, they, they weren't reading John's gospel when he says this to them. He says to them that you're looking to the scriptures to find life in them when they were given to you to point them to you to me. The, the whole of the Old Testament, the whole thrust of the scriptures, old now and new, are to point us to see Jesus as the solution, Jesus as the answer. He's the reason that angels visited men and women to let them know God was about to work in a fantastic way. He was the reason that the angels miraculously appeared in the sky and, and, and began to sing glory to God in the highest. He's the reason that the shepherds left their flocks in the field on their own to go and see a baby. Come on, shepherds aren't baby people, are they? But they left their flocks to go find this baby because they were so astonished at what they had heard. And they wanted to see for their own eyes. Is it true? And, and after, they didn't run back to their flocks after they saw the baby. They went around telling everybody they could find, hey, this is true. It's real. It's true. He's the reason that signs appeared in the stars that led wise men to leave their home to travel cross-country, I'm assuming on camel's back, right? Because that's the picture, right? They're always on camels coming from some distant place. These wise men crossing, uh, uh, um, coming to find this, this baby that the star was telling them that was there, he's the reason that when they arrived, Herod wanted to put all the babies two years below, two years and below to death because he was going to challenge in, in Herod's mind, he was going to challenge his own kingdom, his own authority. He's the reason. He's the reason that we would interrupt all the festivities. That the, This is the biggest holiday, I think. I think this could be said. It's the one that's shared broad, most broadly worldwide, this holiday season, with some of the most common traditions where people are giving gifts, bringing trees into their house. I mean, it's a fire hazard for crying out loud. But we all do it, Right? We, we, we do these silly things. And in American culture, where we go into massive amounts of debt and, 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 and put greater burdens on our shoulders over the, over the reality of this holiday, and ultimately, he's the reason we really have to celebrate. He's the reason that in the middle of this, we would say, you know what? Put it on hold for just a moment. Maybe 45 to 50 moments. Come and think about this Jesus. You know, he's worthy of every ounce of us setting everything on hold. Even if it's a month out of the year. 
to stop what we were doing to consider that he has come, that God put on flesh to live and dwell among us, he is worthy of that. He's actually the only one able to bear the weight of the worthiness required for that kind of attention. He is worthy that, to, to get up in the morning and get dressed up and come and put on a tie and dress differently. He's worthy of that. I thought I was expecting people to show up today in pajamas because I was told a couple of people said, I'm going to wear pajamas next week. I was like, ah, come on. You know what? He'd be worthy of you coming out in, your, in, in public in your pajamas. I'd laugh at you like I've been laughed at this morning too. So he's, he, he is worthy of that. He's, he's worthy of every, every other week of the year. He's worthy of us setting aside time to come together and, and gather and go in his name. He's worthy of us gathering around his word and studying it and to, to know him and to know who he is and to know what he's done. He is worthy. He's the reason behind it and he is worthy of it. He's worthy of us reading 77 names, many if not most of whom we don't know anything about. He's worthy of us to stop and look at a passage like this that seems as if it doesn't have a lot to say because it's just a lot of names. But Jesus is the Son of God, the seed of the woman God promised would come to put an end to enmity, bless the nations, and reign victorious forever. Let's just deal with the differences before we jump into the, to the actual list of names. I want to deal with the differences that are here between this and Matthew's gospel. Everybody knows it. It's not, at least if you've been around Bible, uh, a, a, a Bible preaching church for any amount of time, you've likely heard about it. A lot of atheists know it because they seek to undermine the authority and the inspiration of scripture because of the differences. So it's a well-known fact that there's a difference between Matthew's lineage in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke's lineage in Luke chapter 3 that we just read. So let's just deal with these differences. Let's get them out. Let's get it out of the way. And, and, and let's just start with the reality. I actually heard, I, can't, I think it was Derek Thomas, I heard say something about this not long ago in some, something I listened to. Uh, he said, Don't, let, let's just start from, from the premise of not, of, of not being arrogant and assuming that we're smarter than the people who first read these words, right? So, so let's not just start at the place that we are going to arrive on the scene some 2,000 years later and be able to determine whether or not there's the, that these things actually undermine, these differences actually undermine the reality. Let's just, let's just start at the place that the people of that day understood there were differences and they understood the reasons. But the differences, I mean, because here's the thing, the, the differences aren't insignificant. There are some insignificant differences here. Like the order, Matthew starts at... Uh, he, Matthew starts, well, I'm going to forget. It's opposite of Luke. Luke starts at Jesus and works his way back in time. Matthew starts at Abraham and works forward in time. So it's opposite. Matthew doesn't go far, as far back as Luke does. So th those are insignificant differences. They're not a big deal. But they're significant differences. For example, Luke has 77 names while Matthew has something like 46. Uh, uh, Luke has... Uh, just between, I wrote this down just to make sure I wouldn't forget it, but, but Luke has something like 41 names recorded between David and Jesus. That's almost as many as Matthew has in this whole list. Matthew has 26. These are significant differences. These are things that people, well, hey, man, what, what's up with this? Why is it different? If it's the same Jesus and it's the same lineage, why wouldn't, we, why wouldn't they look identical? 
Again, we don't want to start at the place that we just assume we're smarter than everybody else and that these things have stood the test of time, but suddenly here, 2,000 years later, we are, are smart enough finally to figure it out. But that's how we tend, isn't it? Isn't that how we tend to go? Is like, well, we're smarter than they were because look at all the technology we have. Look at the resources we have at our, our hands. Well, the reality is maybe we're not as bright as we think we are. But there's all kinds of reasons that, that this could be the case. And there's been many explanations offered. Maybe the most popular one today among Christians, among just the, uh, in the evangelical world, would su- some would suggest that Matthew gives us the genealogy of Joseph, Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, while Luke gives us the lineage of Mary. Maybe. But there's other people who say it's flipped around. Now, I don't know which would be right. But that's one of the explanations given. Maybe the most popular among scholars today, among among modern scholars, is that given by uh, I think it originated with Gresham J. Gresham Machen, uh, who who says that uh, Matthew gives us the legal descendants of David, the men who were who, who would have been legally the heir of the Davidic throne, while Luke gives us the descendants of David in a particular line to which finally Joseph, the husband of Mary, belonged. And so, so Matthew is focusing on the legal descendants of David, the, right, the rightful kings, where Matthew is coming along and saying, hey, he's a descendant of David, but this is the line he was in. Maybe the oldest one, at least the oldest one I know of, is offered by a guy named Africanus, and he suggested that there was leveret marriages and adoptions in the line that caused distinctions, and that's back from around the 220 A.D. time frame. The thing is that there's all kinds of different explanations, different ways that people have sought to answer this. Again, I just want to guard us against this reality that maybe we just don't know. I mean, this isn't, wouldn't be the first thing in history that we've lost the understanding of, right? Like, we, who, who knows how they built the pyramids? We've lost that technology. And if you're not a moon conspiracy person, then you realize that they've lost the technology to get to the moon, Right? There's lots of people who say we didn't get to the moon, and that's why we don't have the technology. Lots of people say we went to the moon, but we lost the technology to get back to the moon. And NASA would even say that. We've lost the technology just in a few short generations. We've lost the technology to go to the moon. Now, I'm not making an argument for either. That's got nothing to do with it. I'm just demonstrating the fact that we lose information. We lose understanding. We lose things in the past. And if you're familiar, I mean, maybe a a, a more... uh, popular illustration of this would be the Friends episode where Phoebe wants to give her cookie, her grandmother's cookie recipe away and she doesn't know how to make it. Remember that episode? I don't really, I don't, I don't know it exactly. I bring my wife up here and she could tell you exactly what happened. <laughs> but I know that, that uh, Monica wants the cookie recipe and Phoebe's like, oh, I don't have the recipe, but here's the last cookie in that line. And the reality, reality is the recipe, Monica tries to make a bunch and she can't figure it out. Some are good, some are bad, but none are as good as, as the recipe. And it turns out that the whole thing, the whole time, all they needed to do was look at a bag of Nestle Toll House <laughs> chocolate chips. See, the thing is, I, I think the answer is there. The, the information's out there. We just don't have it. It's floating around on some piece of papyrus somewhere that Here's the explanation, that people understood that this has not been something that, that fell apart in the, in the early gener- generations. I mean, Matthew wrote in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. Luke wrote in the early 60s. So, so the same people end up reading these gospel accounts. By the, by the 200s, they had come to a consensus 
about the, about the New Testament, the 27 New Testament books of the Bible. So, so these things stood the test of time. They understood, and just because we don't know it today doesn't mean that it's not an accurate line and, and, and an accurate lineage. But, but here's, what, here, here's another piece that I would just call out, and though I don't want to dismiss that the differences are there, we don't have the answer to there are points in which both Matthew and Luke draw our attention that are absolutely imperative. They both demonstrate to us who Jesus was and seek to in- in- emphasize what Jesus has come to do. Luke and Matthew, they didn't write these so that, that we could sit around and argue genealogies. Instead, they wrote these so that we would know who to see Jesus as and, and, and know what Jesus has come to do. And, and Luke, I think, purposely chooses to place his lineage or his genealogy in his gospel account, not at the very beginning in the opening of the letter, but right in the middle of the pronouncement from heaven that this is my son with whom I am well pleased. God speaking from heaven. Right following immediately after that, and immediately followed by the, the next set of events in Jesus' life that was being led out into the desert by the Spirit, into the wilderness by the Spirit, and being tempted by Satan, and not falling to it. See, I think Luke, I think Matthew as well, their intention was not to give us something different to argue about, but to point us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is God's Son. He is the Son of God, first and foremost, the Son of God. In the passage just preceding this, I just mentioned it, right? We we have Luke telling us of the baptism, and it's in other gospel accounts as well, that that Jesus goes down to John the Baptist to be baptized, and and John at first doesn't want to baptize him, but, but Jesus says this is the way it needs to be, and after the baptism, the heavens open up. The glory of God falls down, it comes down, the Spirit of God, Luke tells us, rests on Jesus like a dove. And God's voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I don't know what everybody else was hearing, but John had this moment where he saw the heavens and heard the voice of God. And he would testify to it later, and he would understand Jesus was the promised Messiah, the son of God. Even in this genealogy, though. It starts off by emphasizing that Jesus was about 30 years old. And, and as was supposed, he was the son of Joseph. And it's interesting that he adds that little comment, that little aside, being the son, as was supposed, of Jesus. This is verse 23. Well, if he's not Joseph's son, whose son is he? Well, he's just told us. In fact, it's almost like a wink and a nod to those who are reading his account of the gospel. Hey, hey, don't you remember? I just told you whose son he was. But in case you've forgotten, let me work my way through these 77 names and get to the place where I tell you the son of Adam, the son of God. This is a way of, 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 I think a lot of things are happening in that, but this is a way of demonstrating to us over and over, we see that in the Hebrew practice that to say that someone was the son of David, it could have been a great, 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 great grandson of David and still been called the son of David. He's emphasizing Jesus' divine identity, the son of God. If Joseph isn't, who is his father? God the Father is. Jesus is the Son of God. We also see in this that Jesus is the seed of the woman. The, the, the promised one that was to come. Which, which means he's human like us. It's the very fact 
that this lineage exists, that, there, that there's two lineages even to argue over, demonstrate that Jesus was a real man who walked the face of the earth. You could have walked up to him and shook his hand, hugged his neck, walked alongside him, seen his footprints in the dirt. All, all these things, you could have seen it. He was a real person, born at a real time, two real people. He was human, much like us, even though he's not exactly like us. God has been making promises all the way through Scripture, all the way showing us and, and, and protecting and preserving a line that would lead to this place where his son would be born. And it finds its start all the way back at Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent, after, this, after they've sinned, uh, uh, God comes into the garden, the man and the woman, they hide from him, he questions, he, he comes to them, he questions them. The husband blames the wife. The wife blames the serpent. And God curses the serpent. And in the middle of the cursing of the serpent, he promises this. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You can read that literally between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The, the, the word for offspring is Zerah. It, it literally means seed, and it's interesting because it's really a reference to the male, to, to semen, to, to the male's part of the process of, of having babies and not the female eggs. God's not bound by biological norms. He doesn't talk about the, the, the seed of Adam. He talks about between your offspring and her offspring. Because you have done this, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her, between your offspring, her offspring, between your seed and her seed. And already he's making a promise. And it's really interesting because they already recognize that this is going to be a, a male child. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. God is speaking of, of a male child, one to be born, that's going to come. And Luke, all the way now, all the way into the New Testament, Luke provides us an answer to see this. And he says in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 34 through 35, And Mary said to the angel, How would this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He's going to do this apart from mankind. He's going to do this without a man. And man's not necessary in this equation. Mary's going to give birth without the participation of of, of her betrothed Joseph without a husband. She's never been with a man. How could this be? Because God's going to do it. Paul would also understand it, and, it this way, and, and he would write to the church in Galatia, Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. The, the, the idea is they're picking up on this idea that God, in the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis, is promising to the woman, to the offspring of the woman, without the participation of a man. You're going to give birth to a son. It's not the only place we can discern or understand the identity of Jesus. But it's a profound place that ties together so much if we'll slow down and think about who's there and think about what's being said through it. I think one commentator that I read from summed it up well. He writes that the genealogy is recorded at all, shows him to be a real man, not a demigod like those in Greek or Roman mythology. That it goes back to David points to an essential element in messianic qualifications. That it goes back to Adam brings out his kinship, not only with Israel, but with the whole human race. 
that it goes back to God relates him to the creator of all. He was the son of God. And when you, what's interesting, when you follow these promises all the way through the Old Testament, we, we, we come to these, to, to these names that we recognize, these influential, important names through redemptive history. And I called out some of them. I think I missed Abraham. You know, there's David, there's, there's uh, Abraham, there's Noah, these people that God made promises to, and, and three in particular that he makes promises to that, that demonstrate to us that Jesus has this role to play, this, this son and seed has an important purpose. Well, what then is that purpose? What did God send his son and the seed of the woman to accomplish? Well, let's start at the end, or at the beginning, if you will, with Adam, all the way back at Adam, the son of God, the son of Adam, in verse 38. Jesus has come to put an end to enmity. In that passage from Genesis I read to you, listen again, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, oftentimes we talk about this in terms of victory, in terms of conquering, that Jesus is going to conquer the serpent. But as much as as that is is absolutely true, but, but let's not miss what else is being put an end to. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The enmity ends when the serpent is conquered. The enmity's over. The, the, the war of, of these two, two sides, the, the anger, the, the hostility, the division. There's an end to enmity when the serpent is dealt with, when the serpent and his offspring, when his seed, when those that are counted in his line are dealt with, when they are conquered, the enmity is over. God made this promise to, to the serpent, to the Satan. He, he made this promise directly to them, uh, or to him, but Adam and Eve hear it. They get it. They, they begin to understand. So much so that when Adam responds to God's curses, he doesn't say, you know, you're right to do it. We shouldn't have never done it. The, the one thing that we know that Adam said in response to God's judgments on them was, hey, this is my wife. Her name is Eve. This is Genesis 3.20. Her name is Eve because she's going to be the mother of all the living. Now, up until that point, they thought they were going to die immediately. Eat the fruit, you die. That's what God had said. What's going to happen? And that's why they're hiding from him because they don't want to die. And and, and there is a way in which they died spiritually. There's a way in which the exile demonstrates death, but there's a way in which God tells them in that moment, hey, there's a day coming. You will die. To the dust you will return because... From the dust you came. They are going to die. But in the curse put on the serpent, Adam hears God say, my wife's going to have a baby. Wait a minute. And that baby is going to be a boy. And that boy is going to conquer the serpent. There's an end to the enmity. They get it. They begin to already understand. They begin to discern it already. So much so that when Adam speaks, the very first thing he does is name his wife Eve, mother of all the living. But the very first son they have, Eve gets excited and she says, God has given me a man. It's hard to imagine that she's not expecting this to be the son that she'd been promised. Well, then everything happens between Cain and Abel and she realized, wait a minute. And God curses Cain, like cursed from all creation. Are are you? You're cursed. So he kind of gets lumped in with the serpent. And and here's Eve. Now, my one son is cursed and the other's dead. But she has another son. 
in which she says, when she has Seth, it it records, Genesis 4.25 tells us, and Adam knew his wife again, she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Another seed. That's the word offspring, Zerah. He's given me another son. He's given me another offspring. And there's all of a sudden the hope is there again. One to conquer the serpent. One to put an end to enmity. She's looking forward to that, anticipating that, longing for it. Luke directs our attention directly to it. The the passage that immediately is going to follow this passage, I already referenced it to you, is going to be Jesus' temptation. And so for whatever reason, so if you follow the flow of Luke, if you turn back to Luke chapter 3, we, we see how Jesus, John the Baptist prepares the way and then Jesus is baptized. And then Luke, almost as an aside or almost as a footnote, but there were no footnotes in, 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 in this language, in Greek. So, so here's in the middle of all of this is the genealogy and it interrupts the flow of Jesus' life because we know that after his baptism, immediately the Spirit leads him into the wilderness. But immediately following the, 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 the genealogy, which follows the the statement of God, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, we see Jesus led out into the desert, into the wilderness, and tempted by the serpent three different times. And Jesus did what Adam couldn't. Jesus did what Adam didn't. He resists. He doesn't fall to temptation. Jesus has come to actually bring victory where, where before there was failure. Instead of ruling and exercising dominion, Adam and Eve were ruled and conquered by creation. And Jesus, on the other hand, is going to do something radically different. And he is going to demonstrate to us, even getting a glimpse in the wilderness, that the victory is his. Another commentary that I read from Michael Wilcock in the Bible Speaks Today commentary series writes, We may picture our present human existence as a pit in which all of us are trapped For the sin of Adam has removed any possibility of our climbing into the upper world. So what Adam did, it cursed all of mankind, right? It brought us all to this place. Jesus is like us in that he has come down into the same pit with us. He's here. He's put on flesh. He's the seed of the woman. That's the message, both of the baptism story and the family tree, if we leave out their closing verses. But he is unlike us in that while we were here because of a fallen disobedience, he is here because of a a descent in obedience and he has never let go of the rope which joins him to the world above he is firmly anchored up there in unbroken relationship of sonship with the father jesus has come the son of god the seed of the woman to put an end to enmity to provide victory where there has been failure to end the war jesus has come and and that's what he has come to do that's why it's so important that we recognize who he is Jesus has come to bless all nations. He's not only the seed promised in Genesis, he is the seed promised in Genesis. He is the son of Adam, the, the one who heard God say, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He is that seed. But if you just follow the lineage forward, we come to Abraham in verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. He's the promised seed to Abraham. And we looked at this a little bit last week. Just to refresh your memories, and for those that weren't here, I pointed you to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All ethnicities, all nations, all peoples, everyone in the earth, every, everyone who is, who is part of this covenant will be blessed. It will touch all peoples. God enters into this covenant with Abraham, not based on anything Abraham would do, but based on everything God has done. We saw that last week, that that was not by birth, but by faith. And so, so just to be born in the line of Abraham doesn't automatically bring you into this blessing. It's a, it's a connection not of bloodline, but of faith line. So if I believe, if my faith is like Abraham's and I'm trusting the Lord, and it's going to be counted to me as righteousness in the same way that Abraham's is. And as a result, I'm a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, which means I'm in the blessing. And that's true for all that believe. But God's announcement wasn't just about a blessing to come. He's making a promise that's going to come through the seed. And that's in Genesis 12, 7, just a few verses later. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, to your seed, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So, so Abraham hears this promise from God, builds an altar, commemorates this moment, remembers what God has promised, and he begins to anticipate a son. So much so that he begins to think, how do I get this son? And, and, and much of his life begins to be about, how am I going to get this son? I need this son. God's promised me this son. He's looking forward to it. It may seem somewhat insignificant to us today because we're going to immediately attach that to Israel. But again, Paul in Galatians, who is the one that told us in that same letter that it's not about a bloodline but a faith line, he makes the point that this promise isn't fulfilled in Abraham's immediate offspring, his immediate son that's given birth, but being pointed towards Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to the one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This promise made all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. wasn't about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was about Abraham giving way to a line that would lead to Jesus. And it's interesting to me that, that Paul says the promises, which is plural, but offsprings, which it's not offsprings plural, it's offspring singular, which is Christ. But these promises that God is making to Abraham are all wrapped up in and rooted in Jesus Christ. And so it's not just a land promise, it's a whole blessing promise. It's a whole life with God promise. He's going to be blessing to all people who, who will be born in Abraham's line. Jesus has come to bless all nations, but born by faith, not by blood. And it seems that every one of our New Testament writers understand this stuff. They get this stuff, and they point to this stuff. Abraham and everyone who's related to Abraham, not by bloodline, but by faith, will be blessed. So here we have Jesus, who is the Son of God, the seed of the woman, He's come to put an end to enmity. He's come to bring blessing to all peoples. And he will reign victorious forever. Jesus will reign victorious forever. And again, well, where does it say that? It points us to, G to David. He's the son of David, the, the offspring of David. God also promised David that through his offspring, through his seed, that he was going to do a mighty thing. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will raise up your seed, your, your, your child, 
I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here's David. He's like, oh man, I've, I've got this place. I, I, we, 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 we've got this land and, and we've never done anything to build God a house. Let's build God a house. How, how do you build a spirit that's everywhere at all times and all places? A house. But let's build him a house. It's noble. So he's, I want to build a house. And Nathan comes to him. And God sends Nathan to him and says, hey, you're not going to build me a house. That's not going to happen. But look at, what, look, look at what I'm going to do through you. Quit thinking about what you're going to do and look at what I'm going to do. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, see, you're going to die, David. When you lie down, when your days are done, I'm going to keep on working. I will raise up from your offspring, from your children, or from your seed after you. I will raise up somebody who's going to come from you, and I'm going to give him his kingdom. And he's going to build a house for my name. And I'll establish that throne in his kingdom forever. Now, most immediately, we're going to, oh, man, Solomon, he built the temple. This has got to be talking about Solomon. Maybe. And it's got to be, it's got to be, you know, come on, he, he built a temple. Maybe. That's the near-term fulfillment of it. But none of the New Testament writers took it that way. Gospel accounts, uh, the, the, the other gospels, uh, let, me, let me just point to you the, 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 the thing that Luke tells us before I jump to all the other places. Luke chapter, chapter 1, verse 33 through 31 through 33. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is Gabriel's words to, to Mary. He will be called great and be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Whoa, wait. God's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to give him this throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Oh, that's, that's who he was talking about. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's exactly what he promised David. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Over and over, the, the New Testament points to this. The, all, all the gospel accounts refer to this in some way. Uh, Jesus is recorded in John, Matthew, and Mark of talking about the, the temple being destroyed and then three days later being reestablished. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about a building. He's talking about himself. Paul talks about the church as God's temple in Ephesians 2.21. Peter tells us that we're a spiritual house being built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. So who's building the house here? And what's the house being built that God's promising all the way back in, in, in Samuel to, to David? It's the people of God. It's the house of God. It's the temple that God is establishing and building an eternal kingdom that is never going to fall, never going to fade, never going to be overcome by any other thing. It's always going to be reigned by our King Jesus. It was so significant that we understand that Jesus is a real man born of real people walking the face of the earth. It's so significant that we understand that he's not just a man like us. He is a man unlike us and that he is the son of God. He is God in flesh. He is divine in nature and truly human. Because it's there that we can begin to take such confidence in what he's come to do to put an end to enmity. Who can put an end to enmity? Who can bring peace on earth and goodwill to men? Who can bring an end to anger and frustration and division? The Son of God, the seed of the woman. That's exactly what he came to do. 
Well, who can all peoples be blessed in? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the seed of the woman, the one God has been promising from the very beginning. And he is the one who will reign victorious forever. Son of God, the seed of the woman. Jesus, the Son of God, is the seed of the woman that God promised would come to put an end to enmity, bless the nations, and reign victorious forever. The holidays are going to come and go. Tomorrow, Christmas is over. Time to take the tree down. Got a week to get your lights off the house if you're like normal people. Right? Monday morning, or yeah, it would be a Monday morning, January 2nd. You're going to wake up, and the holiday season is finished. But Jesus will still be the Son of God, the seed of the woman who's come to do these things. He's the reason we can have so much, so much hope. I mean, imagine, imagine, um, just think, if, if, if today's hope and peace and joy, today's hope and peace and joy rested on us getting gifts, we'd have to get the exact right gift. Of giving gifts, we'd have to give the exact right gift. Of the holiday cheer, what happens when there's an argument between family members, which is bound to happen if you're getting together with your family? It happened with mine. Maybe, maybe your family's better than mine. It's not hard to do. But what happens when that's disrupted by disagreements? Where's the hope and peace and joy? I know a number of people whose lives are altered in significant ways because of the loss of an important or close family member or friend around the holiday. How are they ever going to celebrate another holiday? How are we ever going to talk to someone in that circumstance, in that position about hope, peace, and joy when all they can think around the holiday is loss and hurt and pain, suffering and sadness? Because Jesus, the Son of God, the seed of the woman, came and put an end to enmity. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the seed of the woman, came to bless all peoples. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the seed of the woman, came to reign victorious forever. He is always going to be worthy of worship. He's always going to be worthy of adoration, awe, devotion, of our gathering in and our going out. He's always going to be worthy of these things because he is always going to be. Son of God, see the woman who's come to put an end to enmity, to bless all nations, and to reign forever. Let's pray.